This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where you can now find in their beautiful cellar Z on West Burnside some great events, tasting events. March 9th, it would be Italian wines. March 16th, there's an Irish beer dinner with gigantic brewing beer. And then March 19th, Beer 101, which features lagers, and then the icons of Tuscany on March 23rd. Yeah, you might have noticed there's a bit of a, an Italian theme going on at Zupans. That's because it's a culinary journey through Italy this month at your local Zupans. You can discover new Italian ingredients and learn about Italian producers and sip your way through the country. Uh, they've got all sorts of great stuff. This, this is one of the many things we love about Zupans is they have all the regular great local stuff in stock that you have come to know and love but all the time they're sourcing from italy in this case uh including pasta and pasta sauces we know a lot of these places because we do those trips there and it's really special and we've identified a lot of places in sicily where we've met the producers so that's very cool um to do it's really cool to go through an italian month and there's always fun stuff i know i don't know if they're doing it this year but last year they had pinolo gelato there serving samples of gelato so uh as, again i don't know if that's happening this year but they'll have things like that at least at zupans all of march Absolutely. Three locations to serve you, West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. And of course, everything you'd ever like to know about Zupans can be found where? Zupans.com. All right, here it is. Time once again. It is Portland's Food Scene Podcast right at the fork with your host, Chris Angeles from Portland Food Adventures, and I'm co-host, Court Johnson. How are you doing, Court? How'd you get through this snow that we had for a few days? Did you survive this? I, yeah, yeah. it's, you know, the, I feel like my heater in the house has been on constantly because we are in a bit of a cold snap. Uh, it feels like the entire United States is in a bit of a cold snap, but, you know, I... Uh, I got out the day that the snow fell and I shoveled my walk and uh, my, my sidewalk and I tried to get as much of my neighbors as I could before I had to rush into a meeting as a, as a good neighbor would. Um, but uh, nobody else in my neighbor was shoveling their walk. And I, I came to be the only place where you could actually walk comfortably on pavement in my neighborhood for, for the past week because it's taken that long for some areas to melt. That invites the stalkers, right? They got nowhere else to go. They have to go I, in front I, of your house. I welcome it, and I get it. Like you know, here here in the Pacific Northwest, at least this side of the the Cascades, where it doesn't snow that often, like people aren't used to the. You know, I think a lot of people just don't own snow shovels, right. so they don't think to go do it. If you don't get at that right away, once it melts and becomes icy, it's it's forget about it, right? Yeah, I've had that. That's one of the reasons I moved from the East Coast. Was I had my fill of having to shovel to get that ice layer off, so it didn't yeah. happen. So yeah, I, I didn't mind it so much, but like if like again, if you don't get at it right away, it it spells trouble, and you might as well just n not do it. But it it became kind of an icy mess everywhere except for for my house. So, um, but it's crazy just how this little cold snap, but way colder than it normally is. Did you see the video that was put out there? I don't think it was the Oregonian, but it was somebody. Of all the trucks on I-5, I, I can't figure out how it was just trucks. Um, 
I I saw um I saw a, a bunch of different videos from either local news stations. ODOT was doing some stuff as part of their their press stuff, but yeah, I, a, a lot of trucks. But what I was seeing, for example, on on Highway Twenty Six Sunset Inbound, it was trucks and then a lot of FedEx delivery trucks and and then just a crazy amount of cars that got stuck. Yeah, well, anything was crazy, but this video I'll send you. It's mm-hmm. somebody had a drone. They're the only, it was a Mini Cooper. They were the only car amongst stopped trucks. The yeah. whole, that's all it was. And this guy was running his drone and it's pretty crazy footage. I just can't figure out how no cars get in there. It's all trucks. All trucks. As though the truck, it was a big truck stop area. I w- all it was stopped on I five going north, right by yeah, the two seventeen overpass. I wonder if that had to do with like maneuverability. The smaller vehicles, except for that that little Cooper, just w- wasn't able to kind of navigate. I mean, obviously, in those big trucks, once conditions go bad, you're kind of you're kind of screwed. We've discussed this, and I don't yeah. think that's the case. This is Oregon, where nobody's going to try to maneuver out of being a sh- you know part of a, a flock of sheep. <laughs> They're going to sit there no matter what. You couldn't have every if if that's the case, everybody would have had to have done it. And that is not happening in Oregon where everybody's going to figure out how to get away from that situation, especially when it was icy and slippery to begin with. That's not sure. it. Can't be. I I I am the uh, father of she, she's about to turn 18, so I've got a, a young driver in the house and then my 15-year-old just got a permit and I'm you know, we're out driving doing driving trips all the time and I'm trying to teach her the uh the courteous Oregon way, but also just like if you're if you're overly courteous, then I think you're going to find you're going to get into issues, so I'm like you get you kind of there's a little bit of a not, not aggressive driving, but proactive offensive drug driving as, as opposed to defensive <laughs> it's tough to teach a 15 year old in Oregon nah, know, when well, everybody else is doing it. it you know what that makes me think court when we started doing this podcast she was five and now she's yeah. driving oh yeah so yep. wow my uh, mm-hmm. youngest i my youngest son turned 31 yesterday oh wow yeah wow. yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah. You were practically that age when we started doing this, I think. Yeah, I was, I was close. Uh, a little little older. Right, little but older. still, it's closer yeah. than no, it's 5 close, and 15. Clo- closer to 31 back then than I am now, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah, so good for you. Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting, speaking of like the early days of the podcast, today's guest goes back to the first or second, second. guest that we had on the second guest we had on the podcast. Yeah, Nick Zukin, then of Me Marimole, now... Writing is uh, exploring Mexico for the best barbacoa he can find eventually to be published in a book. And so in our ongoing series of Where Are They Now, folks that had a lot to do with our food scene. And you know, if you go back before Me Mero Mole, Nick had the uh, one of the first food blogs in Portland. I'm not going to go out on a limb without searching to see what it was called. I, I guess it's had something to do with MSG, right? Yes, extra. MSG well, he, his his. I don't know if his handle is extra MSG any longer on yeah. Instagram, but no, it was the food. It was pretty generic sound. I wish I knew offhand, but anyway, Nick has been an integral part of the food scene here in Portland, and 
What I find very interesting is we talk about it in this. I feel like Nick is a contrarian. Anytime I would post something or I see somebody else post something, he'd come with an opposite point of view. So we discuss mm. this. He doesn't think he's a contrarian. I do. However, regardless of whether he is or he isn't, he is one of the most generous. He, he's one of the nicest men I've ever met. And most pe- there are a lot of people who just think he's kind of tough and a jerk he will admit to that i don't think so i think he's great i've always seen him do you know feed homeless people give people Mm -hmm. rides when they're stranded um and you know writing this book he wants to do it for his ex-employees and i ask him in this episode if he'd ever consider opening another restaurant and of course i guess not to give away too much but the only reason he would do it is to provide a place and an opportunity for his ex-employees who have been ex-employees for two years now to have a a platform from which to grow. So um, he's a, he's Nick is always, and he's a good conversationalist and he's got pretty good takes on what has happened with our food scene because he was right smack dab in the middle of the hell a few years ago and, uh, and talks about that as well. So um, it was good to catch up. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Nick to the scent, and maybe the to, to your point of you know the contrarian uh, part. I, I see. I've never viewed him so much as that. I always just viewed Nick as the guy who wasn't afraid to kind of have a differing point of view because a big observation I made when I moved here to Portland 12 years ago was if you kind of were not counterculture, but if you had an opinion different than the prevailing thought. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of people didn't like that. And I don't think Nick necessarily sought out to have a differing point of view. He just wasn't afraid to express it. Whereas me, on the other hand, and it might be my media background where it's just like, there's no reason for me to create controversy if I don't need to. Um, Nick just doesn't care. He just would basically, this was his opinion. His opinion was always backed in, in not necessarily facts, but a lot of thought. Oh yeah. And, and uh, uh, or or facts and thought. I'm not saying he was just kind of shooting, you know, shooting from the hip. But like, um, he's he just has always struck me as a very thoughtful guy who, at its core, has other people and and Portland and other people in mind. It's it, it's not coming from a place of of you know negativity or trying to be mean but no and he he talks about that and that's exactly what he said he said i just have no problem stating my opinion we live in oregon and portland where people do have a problem stating their opinion they don't always tell you what the what they really mean you got to figure it out yeah and so i've always thought that and the only reason i think he's a contrarian is i've played not games i don't play games with him but i've posted things or I've mentioned, I've commented on his posts and I've said, mm-hmm. all right, wait five minutes and he's going to come back with a, <laughs> two paragraphs of why he disagrees that's with me. And that's yeah. fine. Um, but anyway, that's why I mentioned that. And I think a lot of people think that. And uh, he's just really one of the nicest guys you ever want to be around. And he's humble and he's, um, you know, he... Uh, yeah, he's he's self-deprecating a little bit, not necessarily in a really negative way, but just from a reality standpoint, you know. So he's uh, he, I, I don't know. Do you follow him and see his 
his posts uh, every day, lunch for my wife. That's what he does. Yeah. No, in fact, I've, I've asked him, I said, Are, you should open up a restaurant called Lunch for My Wife because the food he's preparing is, the, I mean, his photography skills are great, but the food just looks delicious. Yeah, no. So, yes. So you can decide whether to leave this in or not, but I, I pointed that out to him. That's what his yeah. next restaurant should be is Lunch for My Wife. I think it's, yeah. I think it's a great name. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, that's not what he's doing. He's focused on barbacoa. We talk about barbacoa and some of the great places. If you listen to this, um, we've given away a few things, few spoilers already in this intro. But listen to this, and he'll tell you where to go for great Mexican and great barbacoa in the area. Which, by the way, he's been on the podcast before when we were doing our sound bites, and he helped us with that a long time ago. I don't know That's if right. that episode is really relevant in 2023 because it was a few years ago, but he updates it uh, today. So. Um, we're really glad to have Nick on as the, our, in our once a month, supposedly ongoing series. Where are they now? Because there are a lot of people that are no longer specifically involved with the restaurants in Portland that are doing new things. And I encourage people to go back and listen to the last two episodes, one with Eric Finley of Chop, and he's down in Arkansas now. And then, of course, we started out with Sarah Hart formerly of Alma Chocolate, who's now a psychotherapist. So these are these are fun things, I think. Mm-hmm. And this, I, I really enjoyed my talk with Nick. Speaking of um, humility, you know, afterwards he said, well, you're probably going to want to edit a lot of that out. And I didn't think that for a second. And we don't do that generally anyway. But I just really enjoyed conversing with him. And the nice thing, one of the things I like about contrary to right now is i can sit back and listen with nick i don't you know he you wind him up and just let him go so yeah speaking of which let's wind him up right now and let him go here's nick zukin formerly of me marimole and zappa pizza and um now doing some cool explore exploration in mexico um, which is pretty deep, and we're looking forward to the fruits of that labor in what he thinks might be a couple of years. Nick Zukin. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers and local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland, West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego, local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years, Ringside has been providing the best steaks and has been the home of the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. Portland Food Adventures. It's your opportunity to travel to the world's most celebrated food destinations with Right at the Fork host, Chris Angelis, and some of his favorite chef friends. Check out PortlandFoodAdventures.com for exciting and delicious itineraries to Spain, Italy, and elsewhere. Stay in great hotels, eat incredible food, and leave the planning to Portland Food Adventures. And by... In Oregon, flavor is not just about food, but about character, freshness, and sustaining this beautiful place. 
our fishermen continue to work hard to bring that flavor to all families who care about good food and healthy eating. Oregon Dungeness Crab, the flavor of Oregon. The actual recording is higher quality, and we have higher quality guests. This, a guest this morning, Nick Zukin. Thank you for joining us on our ongoing series that just started, Where Are They Now? And that refers to people who were pretty prominent in the Portland food world. And I guess they're still, you're still prominent, but you're not really in the Portland food world other than... Uh, Lunch for my wife, which I think should be a restaurant. I think you should do that. (laughs) Why why do you hate me so much as to want me to be in the restaurant industry again? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Well, I do. I mean, you know, I I think there are a lot of people out there that probably don't. But there are probably more people that know you. Once once someone knows you, um, then they do. And I'm going to say this. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and you're probably not going to dispute this. I think in person, and this this kind of holds true for almost everybody, but in person, you are a much more congenial person, man, than you might appear on social media. Might that be true? And by the way, hi, Nick. Hi. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I tend to be a bit of a gadfly, and that probably comes out more online in that uh, it's not that I'm contrarian, it's just that uh, um, I, I think that most people... Um, kind of, um, you know, just uh, wander around in their tribes and aren't open to, um, you know, alternative ideas. And so when I disagree with somebody, I'm, I'm likely to, to say so <laughs> rather than keep my mouth shut. Re- really? I didn't know that. So I'm going to, you know, it's interesting. And I don't think you'll take this personally, but I kind of felt and it hasn't happened in a long time but whenever i post something i or or directly on your feed or on mine not not necessarily on mine but on yours if i say anything i always had said to myself nick's gonna come back with the opposite he's always gonna he's oh and i thought of you as a contrarian so you just said you're not a contrarian but you know that's you're gonna disagree with that right (laughs) well i think a contrarian just disagrees to disagree um, I always right, and that's I always say what I, what I, I always say what I think, but um, you know, mostly what we do on social media is we just pat each other on the back, and so I tend to be the guy who uh, is more likely to say something he disagrees with than to uh, uh, you know heap praise on somebody because I do agree with them. So that's true. I and yeah, in no, fairness, I was always the type of guy more... who um, I actually end up respecting people who, you know, constructively disagree with me more than people who go, you know, like, you know, if a person came into my restaurant and they had um, a uh, constructive critique of my food, I, I trusted their opinion more than someone who came in and just said that everything was great and they loved everything and everything was wonderful. Um, you know, maybe that's a character flaw in me. Um, but, uh, you know that's that's the way my brain works. No, and I think that I think that's fair, and I also think it's interesting that um, I don't think a lot of people would disagree with this idea that people on in Portland and in Oregon are generally more congenial and less likely to state their opinion 
if it's something that's going to create, you know, stir the pot a little bit, as opposed to an East Coast vibe, which is say what you think. So you're not from the East Coast. You grew up here. And somehow you adopted that uh, say what you say what you think, which I think is fine. I don't. I'm not. Dis- I'm not saying there's any problem with it, but I do know that you will always state your opinion, um, and that's good. That's one reason I love having you on the podcast. And I got to tell you, having gotten to know you over the years, you are absolutely one of the nicest, most charitable, thoughtful people I've ever met. The things that you do for people you don't know, you've done it constantly and you're probably still doing it even though you're not in the hospitality industry see heaping but, all that um, praise on me i am positive you're full of shit <laughs> no listen i already listen i started with talking about the fact that i think you're a contrarian so <laughs> but no i mean seriously um you know there are a lot of things you have done for people in strife in momentary strife and in you know longer term strife that i've witnessed over the years and things that i might not have done so and i think as i understand it that comes from your father i I don't know your mom but from your father your father um does a lot for charitable organizations as i see it am i correct uh he does yeah i mean um you know um you know, people may not think of me as like a social justice warrior or anything, but um, my mom was definitely always concerned with social justice and um, and um, concerned with uh, um, people who are being mistreated. With um, I mean, we were poor. I mean, I grew up in a single wide trailer, and you know, my parents were never married. You know. Um, my mom was a single waitress, you know, uh, raising me. So, I mean, it's not like I was, uh, you know, uh, someone on the plantation, you know, doling out <laughs> gifts to the, the plebes or something. But, um, but, you know, it was, it was always a concern for me on, on both sides, you know, but yeah, my dad's, um, you know, to this day, he runs a, um, you know, for lack of a better term, soup kitchen, um, in the Dalles and, um, you know, he's on their board. Um, so, and is always, uh, working with homeless and other people. So, I mean, yeah, it's definitely something that, um, is always been part of both sides of my family. Yeah. Well, it came clear and I guess I used to, I used to see a lot more of it when you had your restaurant, both, uh, the Mimera Mole and also the pizza place for a short period of time. But that, I think a lot of that, when I saw that, it was because you were to and from work and, uh, you know, getting supplies all the time. So you always, you often ran into people in trouble and uh, did things for them. I just, it, it was easy to note that yeah, you did well, that. We also, so, you know, I also had a lot more um, disposable income than, you know, the restaurant had income and we were able to use that income to help the people who are around us. I mean, um, even stuff that people didn't see. I mean, we were feeding uh, people every day for free at Mimaramole. I mean, we were constantly giving out food. Um, you know, Pablo, uh, Caleb, um, you know, uh, Lalo, our other managers, I mean, they all knew and, you know, actually cared to help people. So, I mean, you know, if if some homeless person off the street came in and asked for something, we would make them, 
you know, thing of food, or if we even just saw something. I mean, there was often the case that we'd just see someone outside, you know, that needed help, and we would help them. I mean, that was just the the way that, um, you know, our staff was. I mean, um, you know, uh, people like Pablo and Caleb and Christian and Lalo and myself, I mean, um, it wasn't a, it wasn't so much a program as just, uh, um, a, orientation of care you know we cared about these people that we saw and we were in chinatown where there were a lot of people in trouble and so we helped them um you know we did have programs too like our jacket program you know which a friend of mine from texas uh was inspiration for um you know where we gave out you know jackets and other things to homeless you know um but you know things like uh giving out you know, water, you know, we'd buy lots of bottles of water and just give them out to people when it was hot or um, blankets and, and, you know, warming uh, items for when it was cold and, and things like that. That was just more um, seeing people in need and helping them. Yeah, well, how would that be now? You know, the landscape where your restaurant was, um, you know, has even... How do, how do you put it? It's it's a little more severe yeah, than it was. It, I mean, you know, that was predictable. I mean, I think most of us downtown knew that um, that things were going to get really bad fast. We could see that that the uh, um, that the local politicians and bureaucrats didn't really get what was going on. We knew how much of a knife's edge, especially Chinatown, already was on. And if businesses started closing, if, you know, offices started closing, if people uh, weren't coming downtown, um, you know, that it could get really ugly really fast. And, you know, I, I go down there every once in a while. I don't really have to go down there that much anymore. Um, and it has gotten slightly better. Uh, you know, it was really bad maybe six months ago, a year ago. Like, that block that Mimaramole was on, had turned into um, uh, lots of like drug dealers uh, just hanging out during the day dealing drugs. Um, it was it was getting really nasty, um, but it's uh, it has gotten a little better in the last uh, uh, six months, I think. Well, that's what we're generally hearing that it's getting a little better, but it's still not. It's not what it was, and no. as you're reporting, it wasn't even great when it was what it was. Uh, at the time, it was on the edge. So, um, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a strange time, especially down there. And you know, you mentioned earlier when we were talking before we started recording, uh, Pablo is helping out Charlie, and they're in your old space, uh, the old Mimaramole space, Charlie's Deli, and he went through a lot of heavy shit where he was, just not. And that's kind of not a pun intended, um, <laughs> where his location was, um, you know, every day somebody was smashing something or he had to deal with something. And, you know, I just marvel that people stuck with it and he's still there and he's also expanded down to California, I understand. But, um, but you're not. And, uh, you know, I'm watching what you're doing now, and I have to say there there have been times I wish I could be Lisa because your lunches every day that you post to Facebook, lunch for my wife, are so great. <laughs> great. It's awesome. Is that what's keeping you busy these days for the most part is making lunch? 
I mean, it's definitely what keeps me busy when I'm in Portland. I, I did do a couple of uh, consulting gigs, uh, one in Florida, one in Seattle. Um, and, uh, and kind of my, my project. So I had this project before, uh, um, before we closed me Miramole, which was that, um, I was working on this book on barbacoa, um, which is, uh, you know, pit cooked meats in Mexico, primarily lamb cooked underground. And, um, I go down for four to six weeks at a time to Mexico and, um, and work on my, uh, Barbacoa book, basically. Uh, that's one of my main projects right now. Um, and I uh, bought some like semi-professional um, audio and video equipment. And so I started, you know, because I used to just go down and I'd take notes. And then I, you know, had lost some notes or I go back and not realize what I was thinking. So I started, you know, recording what people were saying. And then I was thinking, uh, you know, if I'm going to record what they're saying, I might as well uh, do it on video. And, um, and so I started doing these interviews with all these, uh, you know, people who've been making barbacoa for, you know, 40 years, 50 years, whose families have been going back over a hundred years making barbacoa. And, um, and so I've just kind of uh, created this project for myself of documenting these, um, foodways in Mexico. Um, and a lot of them are disappearing. You know, a lot of these guys are, um, are the last ones in their families that'll probably be doing this. Um, you know, even in Mexico, uh, people are eating less and less meat. So after the pandemic, um, I decided to, you know, I was thinking about, uh, what I want to do. Um, you know, we're, we're lucky in some ways. Um, you know, obviously I lost, you know, pretty much everything I had by losing the two restaurants. I didn't, you know, I, I stayed open, um, probably longer than I should have, you know, a lot of smart restaurant tours just closed down, but I felt an obligation to my staff because a lot of them, um, wouldn't be able to get, uh, um, unemployment. You know, I felt an obligation to stay open and, um, and pay them basically as long as I could, especially as long as I could get money from, the government to pay them. And so that's what I did. You know, I just, uh, um, stayed open, uh, took the PPP money pretty much, uh, you know, spent it all on, uh, employees and whatever bills that I was obligated to pay. And, um, and you know, we, we stayed open as long as we could. And when the money ran out, you know, we closed. And, uh, so I, you know, I really didn't have anything left, but, um, the lucky thing is we had paid so much in taxes the year before that, um, you know, with all those losses, we got it all back and I was able to use that to, um, uh, pay off the rest of my mortgage. And so, um, you know, my wife and I have always lived really frugally. Um, you know, I, I usually didn't pay myself more than, uh, $20,000 a year when I, for all the years I ran Mimero Mole, um, you know, obviously, Mermole paid for things like it paid for my car during that time. But um, but mostly I lived pretty frugally and put all the money back into the business um, or built up. And a lot of that had gone to Zappa Pizza when we opened that. And so, you know, all our savings had gone too. But, um, you know, paying off our, our mortgage 
gave us almost as much uh, disposable income as I had when I was working. And so, you know, that's given me the opportunity to travel and go to Mexico and work on um, uh, various things. You know, I, um, I uh, uh, started this Barracoa project before the um, pandemic, like maybe 2015 or so. And uh, I never really had time to really give it the attention it deserved. And so after the pandemic, you know, I was thinking about what I was going to do. Would I go back into uh, uh, web development or um, database development? Um, would I learn how to, you know, program for, uh, you know, phone apps or what would I do? And um, I really decided that I wanted to, you know, uh, work on my barbacoa project. You know, I, something, something that I've always felt um, is that Mexico right now is in a transition period similar to the 50s in the United States um, or maybe even the 70s or 80s in the United States where, um, you know, f people are moving to urban centers, um, they're moving out of rural areas, and they're, um, you know, rightfully or understandably giving up their um, food traditions. They're losing, you know, mom isn't, working in the kitchen every day, uh, learning from grandma how to make food. And so a lot of those traditions are disappearing um, as Mexico becomes wealthier, as it becomes more urban. And, um, you know, I don't think people should have to, you know, stay in the kitchen and, and stay poor to maintain these traditions. But um, I think it's important that... Uh, whoever can document these traditions so that, you know, uh, later on people can recover them or, or see what people did, um, so that they're not lost to history. And so what I've started doing is, uh, going and working with people in Mexico and, um, and, uh, using, um, some video equipment I bought to, uh, to document these foodways. I, I interview these families, interview these people who've been making barbacoa for 40 or 50 years. Um, and, uh, and, and then, uh, video the process of them making the barbacoa document, the recipes and so on. Um, and it's something that hasn't been, uh, done in Mexico either. So I feel like it's, uh, it's something that might not get done unless I do it. And so, uh, that's basically what I've been I've been doing. I'll go, you know, maybe four or six weeks at a time. Um, uh, often take a friend with me who speaks better Spanish than I do, um, and I'll run the video and sound equipment while he does the interview or whatever. But it's been great. I mean, I've I've worked with uh, um, families all over Mexico. Um, I spent uh, four weeks in Oaxaca, for example, and worked with uh, four different families. Um, you know, spent several days with them, uh, you know, and they do everything. I mean, a lot of these families are families that are raising the goats or lambs, um, slaughtering them themselves, um, you know, doing everything from scratch. And even like, you know, six-year-old kids are, you know, cleaning the intestines of the animals to make, uh, you know, the, um, the pancita. And, and I mean, this, I mean, this are, are real, um, you know, pre-industrial foodways that we're documenting. So that's been one of my biggest projects right now. 
That sounds really interesting. I did not know that's what you were doing. I just thought you were traveling down there because it was a recreational thing to do. How far into the project are you, and when do you think, you know, do you see an end and when you may be able to complete it? And uh, lastly, too many questions in one question. Do you have a name for the book yet? Uh, I do not have a name for the book yet. Um, It'll probably be something simple like Encyclopedia of Barbacoa. you know, there's nothing like it in Mexico. I do have a friend who wrote um, the Tacopedia, uh, which is a fantastic book. It's a basically an encyclopedia of tacos. And he lives in Coyoacan, which is uh, on the edge of Mexico City. And um, he is uh, interested in doing the Spanish language version of it. So um, hopefully we'll be able to um, do both at once. Um and he keeps pushing me. He's like, just finish it, finish it, finish it. But um, it's a lot bigger project than I expected. I thought, you know, I'd be able to uh, find sources in Mexico and just kind of write an English language version of it, uh, borrowing from the work of others, um, you know. But uh, there really isn't any work by others. So I'm having to do kind of everything from scratch myself. And uh, I tend to be a little bit of a perfectionist in those things. I want to get it right. And so it's taken me a while. I, I expect it to take a couple more years. Um, I still, I have a list of maybe um, still like 12 states I need to visit and go uh, interview people in. So my hope is that, um, uh, I, one of the problems is I need to find a new um, uh, person to help me with the interviews because uh, one of my good friends down there who normally helps me has gotten so busy uh, after the pandemic. Uh, he runs... Um, uh, culinary backstreets in Mexico. So he does a lot of uh, food tours and he's gotten so busy that he can't really help me anymore. So I need to find someone new. But my goal is, for example, this uh, summer, uh, which is kind of the slow season down there because that's their rainy season, um, is to go down uh, and just do interviews like every day or you know five days a week for a month, um, just hire a person to uh, go with me. So if I can do that, that would uh, that would put a big dent in the project and then I can, uh, do a lot of the writing, but I, you know, I've even been working with anthropologists and stuff to, um, to kind of, uh, uncover the history, the real history of, um, of barbacoa because, uh, you know, like any food thing, you know, if you're talking about, you know, Chicago pizza or New York pizza or hot dogs or hamburgers or whatever, there's a lot of myths that grow up, you know, within a culture about the origin of those things. And in barbacoa, there's a lot of those. Um, and there's not a lot of uh, hard research. So I'm trying to do a lot of the actual research um, to kind of uncover the true history of barbacoa as well. So That, that is an awesome project. I'm excited to hear about it and uh, to see the fruits of your labors. Where do you find your subjects? How do you find the, the families? Um. I, I have a lot of connections over the years. You know, I've been traveling to Mexico for 25 years now. Um, and so I have a lot of connections now, which helps. Um, but a lot of it's just on the ground. You know, I might spend a week in a location just going around, meeting people, talking to them, seeing what they do, and seeing if they would be willing to have me come by and work with them. Um, you know, a lot of people are, are understandably worried that, um, you know, they're letting this outsider, this gringo, uh, 
you know, often into their home. You know, most most barbacoa, it's a weekend thing only. You know, primarily Saturdays and Sundays, or exclusively Sundays. Um, maybe market day or Tiangis day. Um, but you know, it's usually only a couple days a week, and a lot of the families that are doing this, they're doing it for extra income. Um, you know, it's hard work. I mean, just to make barbacoa, you are talking about one day to slaughter the animal, um, one day to clean and prepare the animal, and then it cooks overnight, and then you've got to serve it. So you're talking about at least a three-day process, and you know, for one day of selling food. You know, this would not work in the United States at all. I mean, a restaurant needs to be open five days or more usually to be able to make money. Um, and certainly not, you know, three days of prep for one day of, uh, of service to make money. But, I mean, for a lot of people, this is this will make them as much in that one day as they make throughout the entire week. And so, um, you know, this is an important thing for their family. Um, and, and they're often doing it on their in their house or, um, or really what, you know, they might call a ranchito, you know, their little, they might have like a half acre or an acre of property in a rural, um, you know, outside town, um, their house might be on it or it might be separate from their house and they're doing it all there. You know, they'll have a garden, they'll have chickens. Um, and then they'll, uh, you know, have a few, you know, maybe 10, 20 lambs, um, or goats that they, um, are pasturing and they'll, you know, someone in the family is in charge of basically, and then they'll slaughter a couple of them for the, uh, uh, for the barbacoa that, um, week or whatever. So, I mean, this, you know, you're, it's not just, you're not just going into somebody's business. You're really going into their home and you're working with their families. I mean, you've got everybody in the family is helping out on this. I mean, you know, a lot of times, especially in the barbacoa tradition, you know, the, uh, the father or the grandfather will be in charge. You know, he's the barbacoyero. He's the person who is kind of the the head of what's going on. But everybody is involved. Even, you know, six and eight-year-old kids will be there cleaning, you know, the intestines of these lambs to prepare pancita or whatever. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, an entire family involved. Um, often aunts and uncles, you know, brothers, sisters are coming in you know, one or two days to help, you know, they might be helping with the slaughter and the cleaning, or they might be helping with the serving. But you know, this is this is a family um, uh, business uh, that really is helping the entire family survive a lot of times. And so having an outsider come in is, is, you know, uh, kind of a special and unusual thing. And, you know, I'm very, uh, grateful and humbled every time a family lets me work with them. So what do you tell them to set them at ease a little bit? Because yeah, you are an outsider, you're not Mexican. And, um, you know, what, what is it? You don't have anything to show them like the next day. It's a long-term project. Yeah. I, I, you know, usually if I am able to spend an hour or two with people talking with them, they understand that I'm not there to, um, to, uh, take advantage of them or anything that I, that I'm just there as someone who is truly interested in what they're doing. You know, most, um, you know, most Mexicans in Mexico, uh, appreciate what I'm doing, I think, because especially people in, in something like barbacoa where, um, they can see that this tradition is waning and disappearing and seeing that, uh, 
their grandkids aren't really interested in it. You know, um, not only are they not eating the head of the lamb anymore or the brains or whatever, but um, they're not even eating barbacoa. And, um, you know, they're interested in hamburgers, you know, not in barbacoa or, um, or just eating lighter, you know, people eating more salads and not wanting to eat a big meaty meal or whatever. And so when they have someone like me who shows like, uh, you know, true interest in what they're doing and is talking about, um, documenting it, preserving it and promoting it, um, you know, they're happy. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't really care that I'm American. Um, you know, they might even be, uh, happy that I am an American because they can see this maybe, um, being promoted outside of their country, um, and interest, you know, growing in it. And so I think most of them are pretty happy that I'm doing it. Um, you know, they're happy to have anybody doing it. Um, but I mean, you know, I think, I don't, I don't think it matters once they get to know me and they see that it's, uh, um, that it's out of true interest and love of what they're doing. Um, I think, I think they're pretty happy about it. Do you plan on adding a, um, a documentary, a video documentary side of this when all is said and done in and of itself or to promote the book? I don't know. I mean, you know, originally it was just, uh, me recording people on a digital recorder and, and then, um, you know, it was just no more effort really to do it on video. Um, and so I started doing it on video. It also allowed me to buy higher quality equipment so that the audio is better. Um, and, but I think at some point I'll certainly, you know, at least put the, put the interviews up on YouTube or somewhere that people can have access to them. But for me right now, it's just a, uh, a better way to make notes, basically. Yeah, no, you can always, it's nice to be able to refer to those things. Hey, Chris, let's pause a moment and talk about Oregon Dungeness Crab. It's a favorite dish at holiday gatherings, special occasions, or just when you're in the mood for the sweet, delicate deliciousness you can only get from Oregon's tastiest crustacean. It's harvested sustainably from Oregon's cold, clean coastal waters and is available now at your favorite seafood retailer or restaurant. Oregon Dungeness serves up equally as an appetizer or an entree and lends itself to both down home and white tablecloth cuisine. And it's also as nutritious as it is tasty. We know it's tasty. A three ounce portion of cooked meat has 19 grams of protein and contains important minerals and amino acids. It's low in both fat and calories as well as cholesterol and carbohydrates. That's important to me. Yeah. And rest assured, the fishermen are not just delivering a delicious and healthy product. They're also taking care of natural resources for future generations. Visit OregonDungeness.org for information on preparing your favorite crab dish and learning more about the fleet. So go ahead and crack the mystique. Oregon Dungeness Crab, the flavor of Oregon. You know, it dawned on me that we should probably explain to people who don't know exactly what barbacoa is. Yeah, so, um, you know, barbacoa is, uh, most, mostly, most people 
if you were in Mexico and you said that you were going to get barbacoa, what they would understand you to mean is that you would be getting lamb uh, cooked underground. Um, so it gets wrapped in agave leaves and uh, cooked in an underground oven, um, usually about uh, 8 to 12 hours until it's uh, tender and moist. And um, uh, underneath the underneath the meat is a pot that collects the juices and that is made into basically a soup called consomme. And so that, that's what people understand mostly as barbacoa. Um, it's a lot more complex than that. Every state has its, uh, um, own little styles. That's kind of the, uh, central Mexico Hidalgo style. Um, but that's what most people understand. Um, but basically for me, barbacoa is any, um, any underground cooked, uh, dish. So, uh, it could be it could be chicken, it could be lamb, it could be goat, uh, it could be pig, it could be cow, whatever. You know, in northern in northern Mexico and and southern Texas, they have uh, um, a barbacoa that is a whole cow's head, for example, wrapped and cooked underground. Um, in the Yucatan, they have uh, cochinita pibil, which is a uh, pig cooked underground. Um, and you know, even though that's not called barbacoa, I would I would say that it's the, it is a type of barbacoa. Um, so that's that's basically the uh, you know even uh, right now really popular is uh, is a dish called uh, miria. You might have seen it like uh, at taquerias or uh, taco trucks. Yeah. Um, and and that was traditionally a style of barbacoa where that was uh, rubbed with a chili sauce basically and then uh, uh, cooked underground. Um, now it's mostly cooked um, either in uh, steam pots or ovens or or in uh, Guadalajara it gets cooked uh, in these um, uh, clay ovens uh, like you'd see like uh, old pizzas or breads be cooked in. So, um, you know, all of those things. And so that's part of the problem with the project is it's so huge because um, nearly every state in Mexico has its own style. And I'm trying to investigate them all. Yeah, you've got a few states to go. Do you have a favorite <laughs> so far that you, uh, if someone said to you, I have to have the, and you know, I will say this, that all food is subjective. So Nick, I need to have your favorite barbacoa. That would be the question. Do you have somewhere you would send them right now that they have to try? No, that would be impossible. It, it'd be like, uh, It'd be like asking someone who their favorite kid is. I mean, you might have, uh, you might be mad at one of them one day or something, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you love them all, and and that is the truth. I mean, there are definitely places that do a really good job, and um, and the state of Hidalgo. I mean, there it is a passion in the state of Hidalgo, where you're you're almost guaranteed that anywhere you go and get barbacoa, it's at least going to be good. Um, you know, in the, in the same way that if you're, you know, in central Texas, you're almost guaranteed that brisket is going to be good. You know, um, it's, it's, it's just kind of a passion, um, in the state of Hidalgo, but, you know, I've had fantastic barbacoa in every state and each style is a little different too. Um, so I, yeah, I love them all. So have you ever had one that put, 
I, I'm not going to keep going here, but I'm just curious. Have you ever had one that you thought, oh, my God, this is something like I've never tasted before? Um, or are they close enough statewide to not have that happen? Well, I think there's some there's some styles that um, that you never really hear about that are very um, unique to a small area, um, like uh, in the in the town of uh, Cordoba in Veracruz. Um, there is it's the only place you get this style of barbacoa de pollo, so chicken barbacoa, where they um, they use a red chili sauce. Uh, avocado leaves, often hoja santa leaves, and wrapped in banana and cook them. And even like 15 miles away, they've never heard of it in towns nearby, only in Cordoba. But all these places in Cordoba have it, and it's fantastic. So, I mean, it's more the surprises come in that way, finding these uh, very unique re- regional styles of uh, barbacoa that. Um, you know, it's not that I love it more than any other style of barbacoa. It's just like surprising and fun to find something so unique and regional. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. And so, do you uh, have you had any examples in the state of Oregon that would be close by, or even California or Washington, that you would cite? Uh, they're doing a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a bunch of places that uh, actually do a fairly nice job. Um, I think um, uh, I think uh, Berea is kind of um, overpowering it. A lot of the places that might have done barbacoa before are doing that now because it's become so popular, especially with uh, gringos. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I did a couple of articles for the Lamet Week um, a while back, and most of those places still exist. So if someone searches, you know, uh, barbacoa Willamette Week or barbacoa Nick Zukin. Um, they'll find those articles. Um, there's a place uh, uh, in a cart pod called Mesa Buelos in Southeast that does a really good job. Um, there's, um, oh, I'm blanking on the name. Um, but there's there's several places. Uh, you know, there's several on over in uh, Beaverton Hillsboro area, um, a couple in the Gresham area um, that, that do really classic, you know, you go in and you can get uh, um, your lamb barbacoa and consomme. And, you know, it might not have quite the nuanced flavor of the stuff in, um, in Hidalgo, but uh, it's good. Um, it has the flavor of agave. They're actually wrapping it in leaves, you know. So, uh, no, there's, there's definitely good stuff. Good. But Are there some searching? Are there areas of Oregon that are better in terms of uh, Mexican food than others? You know, I've always, in, for, for whatever reason, I have it in my mind that Salem has a pretty good Mexican scene. Um, and, as, of course, it's a much smaller city than Portland. So um, if you can find some nice places there, it's, uh, it's got a higher index. It would have a higher index. Of yes. Uh, Salem obviously has a large... Uh, Latino population and a lot of Mexicans. And so, um, there's lots of great stuff. I mean, if you, uh, drive up, uh, what's it called? Lancaster, you know, basically the main road, if you're, uh, east of I-5, just driving along that, there's so many fantastic places. Often when, you know, I used to have a friend who lived in Eugene that I'd visit all the time. And what I would do is I would, uh, usually get off the interstate and get on 99 
uh, east and drive from Salem to Woodburn. Because uh, Woodburn's the other place that's just uh, fantastic for Mexican food. I mean, that whole downtown is basically Mexican. Um, they've created a little Mexican plaza down there. They have Mexican um, uh, festivals in Woodburn. So, I mean, anybody interested in Mexican food should definitely visit Woodburn. Um, Salem's great. Uh, you know, uh, Gresham area, especially around like uh, 181st, um, you know, that area has a lot of uh, really good uh, Mexican food and Mexican markets. Um, Hillsboro is terrific for Mexican food and Mexican markets. There's some areas in Beaverton. Um, you, you're best off if you get out of central Portland. Um, you know, obviously there's some uh, really good places in Portland too, but, um, but in general, you'll get a lot more density of good places in, in uh, Gresham, Hillsboro, uh, Salem and Woodburn. Well, good. We'll, uh, we will uh, mention the link that you described earlier in the show notes here. So anybody can uh, search and find some of those places too. I think that's really cool. Do you think uh, when all is said and done, you're going to have the bug and you're going to want to open a restaurant called Barbacoa King when you get back, uh, when you get this, <laughs> when all is said and done, you were the Guisado King for a long time. And, uh, you know, I can, I can see you. Do you miss the business? I guess that's really the question. Is it something you'd ever want to tackle again? Um, you know, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, you know, I had a, a really good relationship with my uh, employees at Mimiramole. A lot of them were with me longer than five years. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I still get messages uh, from them all the time, wishing that we would reopen. Um, and if I were to reopen Mimiramole or do something else, uh, I think it would have to be for them less than for me. Um, I, I personally don't think that uh, Portland is a very uh, good place to own a business, honestly. Um, it's not very business friendly. And then just Post-pandemic, it's really tough because uh, uh, there's shortages on labor, um, you know, higher costs on everything here than a lot of other places. Um, so it's, you know, it's a tough place to do business. And I, you know, there's a lot of restaurants in town that look busy, busy that aren't making money. You know, there's still a lot of people making money, but, you know, it's tough out there. And, um, you know, to, I'm, I'm 50 and... You know, every restaurant I own before, you know, it takes years and a lot of work. Uh, you know, I I generally worked, you know, at the end of Mimiramole, I, I was working maybe, you know, 80 hours a week. But typically, you know, in the first few years of a restaurant, whether it was Kinney and Zooks or Mimiramole or, um, you know, other places, it was 100 plus hours a week of work. I mean, it's it's a that's, lot of work. That's insane. <laughs> It's just, it shouldn't be like that. It's much like anybody, everybody should have a living wage. Everybody should have a reasonable amount of hours the, to make a living. But that's what it takes. But I guess, you know, you're citing that's the state of the industry right now, labor shortages, costs. But I was thinking more, you don't know, obviously. You don't know where it's going to be. But when you 
complete your book a couple of years down the road, maybe things maybe things will change in Portland. So it's a it's we can get back to a foundation that allows us to have this incredible food scene because in my mind it's not what it was. Um, it's still good, but I also am guilty of not getting out as much. I'm a little further away, and um, after the pandemic, my disposable income to go out the way I used to is not there. So, um, and I think that's affected restaurants too. Although there are, there's certainly a lot of people who made out very well during the pandemic or continued to do well, and they can do anything. But um, I don't know. I, I was just thinking, not necessarily tomorrow. But you know, five years down the road, do you think the the bug might get you if you haven't, if you're not well, think, enjoying, <laughs> co- d- you know, d- doing consulting in the in the IT world? Yeah, I think. Uh, well, I did I did restaurant consulting, not IT consulting. But um, well, yeah, you the, talked uh, about d- p- perhaps learning it. But anyway, oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know, honestly, if I had my druthers, I would just be in Mexico all the time. Um, you know, if I was if I was rich, I'd like. Uh, buy one house in Mexico and buy one house in Italy and just spend all my time in those two places. But, um, but if I, if I, re- I mean, every year it gets less likely that I'll open a restaurant. I mean, restaurant is, is, is hard on you. You know, when I, I did, uh, that consulting gig in Florida, I was working about a hundred hours a week and I was on my feet for 80% of those, you know, I, I'd take one day off maybe a week. And I would just sit in my hotel room and just lay in bed. <laughs> I'm getting older, uh, you know. I'm not the I'm not the picture of health as it is, you know. Uh, and I, you know, spending all your on your spending all your day on your feet is uh, is is not easy. Uh, working in a hot kitchen is not easy. Um, so I think as I get older, it gets less likely. Like I said, if I did it again, it would be for my employees. I would be. Uh, Working with them, teaching them the business side of restaurants, uh, helping them develop menus, you know, almost acting like a consultant um, and then, you know, uh, trying to uh, turn it over to them, find, you know, funding for them so that they could own uh, the restaurant, um, not me. You know, I'd be happy if, if, you know, if I could get, you know, a few of my employees together that, uh, um, you know, regularly email me or something and, and find um, a loan for them to reopen me Miramole, and they wanted to take that on and own their own business, I'd be more than happy to do that. Um, work, uh, for myself, though, uh, I think it gets less and less likely every year. Yeah, it's a, I think it's generally a young person's business, and anybody who's continuing on into their 50s and 60s, they have uh, a uh, strong enough support staff so that they can have a little time to themselves because there's no way as you get to be that age you can be on your feet as much as one one has to be and so um yeah well it's good that you got it in when you did right <laughs> <laughs> i guess Hey, Chris, we are pausing just a moment to talk about one of our favorite places to eat, Ringside Steakhouse. Hey, Court, I know you love the hats, and I kind of do, too. I always have a hat on. Mm -hmm. For the first time in Ringside's 79-year history, you can get a hat, T-shirt, even an apron for your favorite Ringside fan. Those are available in person 
on West Burnside. Go to when you, while you're eating, ask for them, or just stop in after what four thirty, I guess. Yeah, this is really exciting for me, Chris. We were talking about this off air, and when you told me this news, I got really excited because uh, a few years ago, I noticed somebody back of house at Ringside wearing a really cool Ringside T-shirt, and I thought. I would like one of those, but you know, it's ringside steakhouse. You wouldn't necessarily think to go there and buy a t-shirt. Now you can first time in 79 years. This is exciting. This should, this should be headline in the New York times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So take advantage of that. Also take advantage of the three course prime rib dinner that takes place on Mondays. You you've done this. Oh yes. And it used to be Wednesday. So be aware because I had a friend join me for dinner once and she was expecting Wednesday night prime rib not happening. So yeah. um, But they do have it available outside of the special on weekends as well. So you can get prime rib with their unbelievable Yorkshire pudding um, on those nights. But the special is Monday night. That's the night to do it. I was there last night. Wednesday night, it was packed. So, um, but I wasn't packed to the point where you couldn't walk around in the uh, the hostess host section, but it was it was nicely packed. And of course, we had an incredible, including a, a meal, including the wagyu, which anybody has to do once at least in their lifetime or more. Once you do it once, you want to do it more. And I have. Uh, don't forget right now because it is Dungeness crab season. You right now on the menu in the in the appetizer section, the chili lime Dungeness crab cake. So get that while you can. Or the crab cocktail was unbelievable. So I suggest anybody there if they if you're going with the table, get the crab cocktail and the prawn cocktail and have a start your meal off the right way, including onion rings, of course. Oh, yeah. Got to do, do, do that, too. So also, one quick thing, because we've been talking a little bit here. Halibut season starts May 10th, and Ringside will have that on the menu made Chef Jonathan Gill's way after that. So mark that on your calendar and make a reservation. You can do it at ringsidesteakhouse.com or on the Open Table app. You know, you asked about uh, the lunches for my wife earlier, and I guess I didn't answer your question. But, um, you know, after the restaurants closed, you know, I was pretty depressed for, I don't know how long, six months or, or more. You know, it was, it was definitely like getting out of bed was just, you know, a trudge. And, um, and I felt really kind of lost. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the lunches for my wife was kind of, uh, something to give me some direction. You know, I started, uh, um, well, I'm just going to get up and I'm going to, originally I had thought, you know what, I want to do kind of like, uh, what was that, uh, Julia Childs thing where that, um, where that blogger was like making a different, uh, uh, Julie and Julia or whatever, where she made a different, you know, uh, dish from, uh, uh right. Julia Childs every day. Well, that, that was kind of the original idea. Was you know what? I'm going to I'm going to just start cooking from Diana Kennedy's books. Uh, give me a chance to learn, um, you know, new things, and I'll just uh, work on that and and uh, and deepen my knowledge of Mexican food. And then it just uh, uh, that was a little bit too much of a pain. 
<laughs> to find all the ingredients and everything. And so I just started, you know, just cooking more freewheeling Mexican food uh, for my wife every day. Um, during Lent last year, I did all vegetarian and seafood and just kind of, uh, you know, sometimes I'll look stuff up and find a new sauce or a new dish to make and learn about. Sometimes it's just whatever is available at the markets, what we have in our pantry. You know, my wife gave me uh, uh, this gift from Rancho Gordo beans. So I had all these beans I'd never used before. So just learning uh, those sorts of things and just making something every day for her, um, you know, for lunch and focusing on Mexican food gave me an opportunity to learn and also do something for somebody else. You know, a lot of us in the restaurant business, um, you know, what we all kind of wish uh, we could do is just um, serve that person, you know, give them this gift of this uh, dish that we made and see them enjoy it. You know, it's, it's kind of a weird, simple thing. And the, uh, you know, the restaurant business ends up being kind of the worst place to do that because you have so many, um, you know, uh, things you're dealing with every day. You're dealing with, you know, uh, you end up dealing with more complaining customers than you do people who, you know, say something nice. Um, or, um, and so, you know, just like wonderful when you do find somebody a customer and that you can talk to and they really get what you're trying to do. But, um, um, but you know, just that every day doing this thing for her. Um, and also, you know, it just gave me direction after the pandemic. Um, and, and so that was, and that, so that was why I kind of did it. It gave me a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Um, well, the, the dishes look wonderful. And I've, I, always laugh to myself that who else in the world would ever actually have this momentary thought, I wish I could be Nick's wife. <laughs> <laughs> because she's, I always say, Lisa's eating better than anybody else that I know. Because Nick is doing this every single day. It's like having a restaurant in her home. And you're doing, they, the, the, the dishes are plated beautifully. It looks so appealing. And usually it's when I'm having a, a fucking bologna sandwich or something. I'll see that. <laughs> I'm like, ah, shit. That looks so much better than what I'm having right now. So, Well, it's funny, too, is that people always ask me, uh, so do you make two of these? And it's like, no. <laughs> I don't. I, I eat, like, the leftover scraps, maybe. Uh, of these dishes I make. I think a lot of people don't realize that too. Like, uh, um, you know, it'd be kind of an interesting project is just to like talk to, um, uh, chefs about what they make for themselves. Um, you know, uh, you know, Janice from Tanuki would always put out, uh, half joke, uh, you know, posts about what she was eating for herself. And it was always like, you know, I've got some saltines, tuna, and some mustard, or, you know, just these, like, disgusting-sounding things, uh, you know, pulled out of the pantry. But I think that's true with a lot of uh, cooks and chefs is that, um, you know, making these these nice things is about doing something for somebody else. And when they make food for themselves, it's often, like, the most uh, simple junk. <laughs> I, I think that's that, the nature that of the they would never serve to anybody isn't else. It? That's the nature of the hospitality. That's pe why people get into it. They want to bring joy to others, and it's not about themselves. I actually, I can't remember. It might have been Brian Deckert, um, 
you know, who works out at Country Cat at the airport. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if it was him or he commented on somebody else posting something about Bruce Springsteen understands hospitality because he was so giving and so, uh, you know, his show recently in Portland. Uh-huh. He, and I've seen him before. He just really cares that everybody's having a good time. And he puts out, he's never, he never, the guy's, you know, uh, is he over 70 now, maybe? He's uh, or got to be yeah. over 70 now. Yeah, or just over 70. But he's he's been doing this forever and he never dials it in, man. He just does it. So it's the same thing and that I've, you know, one of the things that I've admired so much about people in the hospitality industry and why I got involved in it at all, having nothing to do with it, was how impressed I was at how much heart everybody had and how much they wanted to please everybody and what a good job every, most everyone was doing and with passion in Portland with great ingredients. So, did you I think see? That, um, did you see the movie The Menu? Yeah. Oh, I just commented on the other day. Yes, I did. Yeah, I think that was one of the one of the things it captured was that um um you know uh you know that's that's really what uh I think a lot of um people who go into cooking really um enjoy or want it to be is that you know in that case, you know, he serves someone a hamburger. <laughs> But I mean, you you really just want that to be able to have that um, one-on-one relationship with the diner, where you give, you know, something that you care about to them, and they, you know, appreciate it, and right. uh, you know, and and that I'm able to do, you know, with uh, with my wife's lunches a lot more than, you know, of course, I could ever do that in the restaurant industry, and. Um, yeah. And I think that's one of the things that differentiated Portland for me when I got here in 2005. I didn't, you know, in the kitchens in uh, the East Coast in Connecticut and New York, I had zero interaction with a chef. I even knew some chefs, but they were back in a kitchen. You'd never see them. And then when I got to Portland, I was sitting at chef's counters and talking to them. And and they, you know, I remember Adam Sappington sitting at Country Cat and having him hand me little morsels of bites and say try this that's exactly what you're talking about and it really really resonated with me and hit me it was really like this is a different experience you know i've been a sports fan fan for years and other than joe namath i've never had anybody uh act you know like they care or give to me um you know in professional sports there are a lot of giving people but you don't you don't get to have any of them say here damien doesn't come up to you and say let's shoot baskets um, so you can have that experience, but he does well, entertain the, everybody for sure. There's no doubt about that. So well, I think one of the nice things was, um, you know, that's been kind of lost in Portland is that, um, you know, it was, it was inexpensive enough in the early two thousands, late nineties for sure. Early two thousands, um, that, that people could come here and kind of, you know, with a dream, you know, maybe they worked at a big restaurant you know, now they're in their thirties and they're thinking, you know, I want to do something myself and I'm really passionate about this thing, whatever it is, I'm passionate about this thing. And so Portland was kind of a magnet for people who had passion and thought that they could, um, you know, fulfill that passion because it was small enough, cheap enough, uh, to do. 
And I think that's probably been lost in Portland over the last, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years um, as it's gotten, uh, you know, more expensive and then um, uh, to do business here. Well, you the model, I think, has become open a food cart and see what you can do with the food cart unless mm-hmm. you have big bucks behind you. But that's not the same as what you're talking about when people just, yes, had a passion and for could uh, bootstrap opening a little restaurant and see where it went. And if you had a lot of industry friends, that would help back then. So, right. Um, yeah, I kind of I, th- I guess that goes on a little bit. But as you mentioned, it's just not. It's not the same as it was. Yes, you would think after the pandemic there'd be a lot of uh, space available at a slightly reduced cost, but I don't necessarily know that that's the case. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know what uh, rents are like, but I think um, I think now you just also have uh, you know labor costs and and labor shortages, and then you know uh, food costs are really high here. I mean, I don't think people realize how much higher food is here than a lot of the rest of the country too. I mean, I go into, you know, I shop at Winco and finding beef under $10 a pound is like nearly impossible now. Even chuck roast is like nine, eight, $9 a pound off. And it's, uh, it's kind of insane. I, I, I really, you know, people, people wonder why they go in their uh, hamburgers are now all $15. <laughs> it's like, that's inflation, bitch. Yeah, no, we're all getting used to that little by little. I paid three. There's a little pop-up bakery out here in Manzanita that is, I've only had it once. It was great, but, and they deliver. So there's that premium that you Uh should pay. But I mean, I had, uh, what were the bagels? $3 a piece for their bagels and muffins that were $5. And I thought about it. I thought, you know, that's the way it is now. We just have to get used to it um you know things have changed i always thought before prices had rised a lot risen a lot uh rised um we you could see it in the pizza here because i used to be able to and i've mentioned this a few times on this podcast pizza for me was you know a large pizza with lots of things on it even clams and the east coast for 18 dollars a large i mean a large large And I moved out here and, you know, I was finding that at some of the best spots, the minimum for a pizza was 25 bucks. It wasn't even that large. And at some places that will remain unnamed, you might get four pieces of sausage on the entire pizza. And and so over the time, you know, I had uh, and I'm not talking about a pizza shoals or cans, but I had Brian and those folks on my podcast and I would ask them about it and you know, I learned really quickly that the cost of ingredients, the cost of excellent ingredients right. in Portland uh, was way higher than what some of the places that were packed in New Haven were paying. Um, and maybe the labor issue was different. But, yeah, you can see it in the pizza here. And, I, you know, you're starting to see – I remember tacos were $1.50, $2, and now you're starting to see three fifty tacos. And same thing with oysters, same thing, right across the board. Everything is a little more expensive now. So yeah, well, I think I think just the the hard thing right now is just that it happens so quickly, right? So I mean, it doesn't give doesn't give people or their um, uh, wages time to adjust, right? Like it's it's hard for me now to go to a restaurant, um, even even a downscale restaurant, and spend 
you know, less than $20, $25. But an upscale restaurant, you know, it's it ends oh. up being $75 or more per person, even if I'm just kind of like ordering a la carte and just having a, you know, entree and appetizer and a drink. Um, right. So, uh, you know, that happened rapidly. I mean, you know, pre-pandemic to now, you know, prices in restaurants might have gone up by 50% or more. And meanwhile, uh, you know, they're, they have fewer people on staff, which means that service is worse. Um, a lot of times the, uh, uh, the menus have been very narrowed down to just most popular items, which makes them seem less interesting and creative than they used to be. So it, it's definitely tough. I think, you know, hopefully inflation will get under control and, uh, and, you know, in, in a couple of years, it won't feel like, uh, um, things are that expensive anymore, but, um, but no, it's, it's definitely tough right now. And I feel really bad for, um, all these other restaurant tours who are having to, you know, deal with all the problems on that side as well. Right. And it's not just Portland, it's all over the country. So we still have relatively speaking, a very cool food scene. It's different than it was. That's all. So, and, and, you know, part of it is we don't have your restaurant anymore, which I thought was always a, uh, a wonderful. I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass here. The food was great, and the food was great, and it was reasonable, and the drinks were reasonable too. I just had a shitty margarita the other day for 50, for fifteen bucks. Uh, so um, yeah, I mean it was really bad for fifteen dollars. It just bothers me. I'm not a big drinker, so when uh, that happens, it just it's glaring for me. This is so not worth it. For, and then you got a tip on top of that. So it's a $20 margarita, $18 margarita. Right. So um, anyway, listen, Nick, am I missing anything that you may want to impart? Any wonderful information? Or you, uh, you've been very kind to spend an hour with us. I, I asked you for an hour, and we're over an hour now. So um, anything else? Uh, I, anything? Have, I have no clue what we even said the entire time. So <laughs> hopefully you can edit it um, um, greatly to make it sound not so. No, uh, we don't do a lot. No, it's a great. I really enjoyed this, and I, I, th- I found it was fascinating. I would, I, if I were you, I'd edit the hell out of it. But. No, I, we're going to edit it a little because we got my my one of the dogs, dogs barking, and uh, then we lost it a little bit. No, it's not going to be. We don't go through and edit um, very much. I mean, if you said something that you were un- unhappy with, we could do that. But that would have to. I'd have to know like right now. I'm not going to go no, back no, tomorrow I, and go through it. But um, at any rate, I really appreciate it, Nick. And I honestly didn't know that you were doing your book when I asked you to come on. I just wanted to see what's Nick up to. So that is really cool. And I'm, you know, I, I think I'll be watching your travels with a different eye now than I was because I've always been kind of jealous. And I did notice, holy shit, he's in Mexico a lot. So that explains that. And uh, you've been elsewhere too, right? Haven't you traveled to Europe recently? Didn't you go to Italy? Yeah, I mean, when I travel to Europe or something, so my wife and I, um, for maybe the last 10 years, have always saved up money through the year to um, do one, to do like one big trip. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes we can do more, but uh, but we try to do like one big trip, two weeks, usually to Europe somewhere. And so that's, that's all vacation and fun. And so we do that. We're, um, uh, we went to... Uh, 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 Portugal last, we, we did Portugal, we actually did, uh, Portugal, Spain and, and a little bit of France. So we did, um, 
we started in Lisbon and uh and then went up to uh um Santiago and then over to San Sebastian and then into France and then uh left from Bilbao. Um so we did that trip. That was actually a three week trip. That's the longest trip we've ever done together in Europe. You, how did you like Bilbao? You know, we only spent one day in Bilbao. Um mm-hmm. partially because um you know, Bilbao's a little more modern than uh, a lot of the other places. And so, you know, we went to the museum, of course, um, and we had some meals and stuff. But we actually spent um, more time in San Sebastian and uh, and other places. Um, you know, the, the one that surprised me was how much I liked Santiago. Um, uh, I don't know if you've – have you been there, Santiago de Compostelo? No, I have not. But I've in been to a couple Galicia. of the other places you mentioned. Yeah, it's in Galicia, and I would highly recommend it. Um, uh, it's a it's a great town for food. So this is the town. It's a um, it's a pilgrim town, and people go there. I can't remember what they're going there for. The finger Peter's finger of Peter, some sort of thing like that. But um, you know, it's it's a religious pilgrim town, but it also has one of the best um, markets I've been to um, in. Uh, Spain and uh, everywhere we ate was good. Like, um, you know, we had a, I'm not very good at getting reservations and we would, um, you know, sometimes do some last minute places and they wouldn't be like the recommended places necessarily. And still the food would be really good. Um, uh, it's small. It's very um, easy to walk the whole thing. It has lots of interesting little shops and, and stuff. So uh, highly recommended. Uh, great market. Um, Thank so you. That, was, that hasn't that been on my radar. That, yeah, that was probably the place that surprised me the most. And oh, I've nice. heard that uh, that whole part of Galicia, too. I don't know if you're a big seafood person, but... Um, oh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, supposedly they have some of the best seafood in Spain. Um, you know, if you get even closer to the ocean along there. But also, you have, you have kind of an interesting thing in that part of the country in that... Um, uh, inland, you have some of the best beef in Spain, and then along the coast, you have some of the best seafood. So you can get these uh, fantastic, like, aged steaks pretty much everywhere, um, and then also some really interesting cheeses and stuff, and then also fantastic seafood. So um, it's a pretty interesting uh, area for food, really. Thank you for that. I mean, I've spent a lot of time up in, you know, Basque Country and down right. around Barcelona and a little bit in in uh, uh, southern Spain, Andalusia, but, and we'll be going again soon. But mm-hmm. no, no one's ever mentioned that to me. And no one said you got to go. So I really appreciate that because that's going right at the top of my list. Based yeah, on you could. Uh, I know you go to uh, do your tours and stuff in San Sebastian. Um, yeah, sometime, I don't know if you know, if you could make an extra week and just uh, drive over to Santiago from San Sebastian and stop over in the Cabrales region, you know, which is, mm-hmm. you know, of course, known for their blue cheeses, but um, it's beautiful in there too. You're 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 basically in this uh, canyony area um, with these huge mountains on one side, and then you've got uh, 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 you know all these places making their own cheeses, and you can go visit the cheesemakers. You know, these caves where they're aging the cheeses um, and stuff. Uh, we did that. We stayed one night there, and that was uh, really interesting, too. Um, 
and ate a lot of really good food there as well. Oh, good. I am, I am really hoping that some people listening to this podcast take you up on that and go have that experience and they have it because you happen to say, yes, I'll join you on the podcast. I love how things like that happen. So I hope they do. We ne- you never know. And this is, this is certainly, uh, you know, over an hour in. So I hope people are still with us. They should be because you're always a fun conversationalist. And uh, I-, I enjoyed this a lot, uh, contrary to what you think. <laughs> well, just, just edit it down to like 15 minutes and only the good parts. And it'll be it. No, we don't. You know, so, listen, one thing about podcasts is some of them are just like two hours, three hours. I don't feel the need to cater to the TikTok generation. I'm a baseball <laughs> fan, and I'm just now getting used to a pitch clock. So, um, <laughs> so I don't know about getting used to it. It's only two days in spring training, but I'm seeing some of the merits of it. So, But I don't see the merits of spending a lot of time editing these down for people who have no attention span. So um, uh, anyway, this is longer form, and it's a conversation, and... Thanks, Nick. This, how many appearances was this for you? Probably four or five? You would know better than I offhand. Yeah, maybe four. Yeah, you did the cultural appropriation edition. I remember uh-huh. that. And you were like our second guest ever right. on episode number two. And then I, I'm sure you've been back since. I don't know. But anyway, thank you for doing it this time. It's really cool to catch up with you and see what you're uh, – up to now and i'm glad you're doing well and i'm glad you're out of your depression period that's tough that's tough stuff thanks right at the fork is hosted and produced by chris angeles and court johnson connect with us on twitter and instagram at food podcast pdx or on facebook at right at the fork or online at right at the fork.com.